This is Father McConville. My interest in opera began in an unusual way. When I was in grade school, I saw the Gene Wilder movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. One of my teachers had read the book to us, so getting to see it in the theater was a thrill. In the movie, Mr. Wonka leads the five contest winners and their parents into a room where everything is edible. The door to the room was secured by a musical lock upon which Mr. Wonka played a tune. One of the parents, offhandedly, as though a sophisticated expert, replied, Rachmaninoff. I thought that little piece of a tune sounded delightful, and I wanted to know which composition of Rachmaninoff's it came from. I never did find out, because it was actually written by Mozart. Um, eventually, I discovered that my grade school credulity had been played upon by the screenwriters of Willy Wonka. As a musician in the high school band, I played the overture to The Marriage of Figaro, and voila, I finally discovered the source of the tune that I wrongly attributed to Rachmaninoff. About the same time, a friend of mine introduced me to the comedy songs of Tom Lehrer. Among his pieces was a song that was a list of the chemical elements. It was set to a tune from the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, The Pirates of Penzance. Once again, I loved the tune and replayed the track on the album over and over until I could sing the song from memory. There's anemone, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, etc. These two operatic hors d'oeuvres kept my appetite whetted until I came across recordings of The Marriage of Figaro and Pirates of Penzance. Both recordings threw me into an entirely new world of music. I had discovered classical instrumental music in junior high school, and being in the band, I also played some transcriptions of uh, orchestral works, so I became familiar with the repertoire. I also sang in a few high school musicals, but opera became something altogether new. Beautiful instrumental writing wedded to incredibly powerful singing. Imagine my utter amazement when I saw my first opera. As it turned out, the first staged operatic performance I attended, and this will make the purists shudder, was Gilbert and Sullivan's Princess Ida, uh, performed by a local amateur company. I say the purists will shudder because Gilbert and Sullivan could hardly be put in the same category as Mozart, Verdi, or Wagner. Still, I had read the libretto a few months earlier during my frantic search for the source music of Tom Lehrer's The Elements, and whether operetta, opera buffa, opera seria, grand opera, call it what you will, it was all the same. My first professionally staged uh, operatic uh, performance was The Magic Flute by Mozart. From there, my love for the opera grew, and I can proudly say that I've sat through all 15 hours of Wagner's Ring without a yawn. Speaking of Wagner, he understood the psychological impact music can give to a dramatic moment. For example, I'm sure everyone can think of a moment in a movie where the music made a huge contribution. Believe me, John Williams understood the concept. Listen to the soundtrack of Star Wars or Jaws. Schindler's List, on and on the list goes.
<laughs> but opera goes beyond the momentary flourishes of music we hear in a movie. Opera can uh, get a little complicated or uh, absurd at times as far as the plot is concerned, but the fact everyone is singing rather than speaking already pushes the listener into a realm of willing suspension of disbelief. In fact, simply reading the libretto, or the script, if you will, of some operas is enough to make you laugh. But when those seemingly silly words are set to music, the effect can be electric. In, uh, in what I hope will be uh, this series of podcasts, I'd like to share with you my love for opera. Especially, I'd like to examine some operas that offer lessons in spirituality and the human condition. In preparing these talks, I came up with some thoughts about operas like Carmen, Thais, Die Valkyre, and Don Giovanni. But for starters, I thought I would look at an opera written by Francis Poulenc, The Dialogue of the Carmelites. As operas go, I wouldn't use it to introduce someone to the genre. However, as a source of musical reflection upon Christian themes, it works. Poulenc uh, was a fascinating fellow. He was uh, the only son of a well-to-do manufacturer uh, who expected young Francis to carry on his business. He received little formal musical education, but he made a pretty comfortable living as a concert pianist. Eventually, he was considered an up-and-coming composer and numbered among a group of French composers called Les Six. Uh, I first heard Poulenc's Concert Champêtre in college and fell in love with hearing a harpsichord in 20th century music. He died in 1963, the year I was born, so we never met, or if we did, he didn't recognize me. Poulenc was known as a bon vivant, which is a polite way of saying a rabble-rouser. He was known for his devotion as a Catholic also. Um, I think uh, that's what makes his Dialogue of the Carmelites such a great opera, as we shall see. The story is a fictionalized account of a real historic event. The libretto is based upon a novel, Song at the Scaffold. The book became a play, and Poulenc thought it would work well as an opera. Another reason I think the opera is interesting is the fact that Poulenc wrote his own libretto, giving it a level of personal significance. The story is about a group of Carmelite nuns who were guillotined during the Reign of Terror following the French Revolution. The manner of their death, mounting the scaffold and the guillotine, is the dramatic conclusion of the opera, which Poulenc masterfully depicts in the music, but I'll save that for later. The Carmelites of Campania died on July 17, 1794, in Paris. Their bodies were buried in a common grave in a nearby cemetery. Incidentally, the Revolutionary War General Lafayette is buried in the same cemetery. It was uh, at this grave, Colonel Charles Stanton said, as the American troops arrived in France during World War I, Lafayette, we are here. These Carmelites were declared martyrs by Pope Leo XIII in 1902, and beatified by Pope St. Pius X in 1906. In this talk, I simply want to take, take you through the plot and point out a couple of musical highlights from the show. Also, I want to reflect upon some of the deeper spiritual themes Poulenc presents. 
If you have a chance, after this talk, go on YouTube and look up the finale to the Dialogue of the Carmelites. There's a couple of clips, one with Dame Joan Sutherland and another with Jesse Norman, that capture the power of the drama. By the way, Jesse Norman passed away last year. She was a wonderful uh, opera singer, and I particularly first got to know her and like her when she sang the role of Sieglinda in the 1991 Metropolitan Opera productions of Die Valkyrie. Um, our point of entry into the story is a woman named Blanche de la Force. Blanche is the daughter of the Mar Marcus uh, de la Force, the Marquis, uh, and it is the French Revolution and the aristocracy are being slaughtered by the mobs. So Blanche's father and brother worry about her. Blanche is in a bit of a bind. You see, when she was born, a crowd attacked the carriage her parents were in. Her mother went into labor out of terror and died giving birth to Blanche. Her brother believes these events left her with a fear of life. As the opera opens, Blanche's carriage has been surrounded by a mob and she barely escaped. Badly shaken by this event, she asks her father's permission to become a nun. She believes she'll be safe from all the hubbub of the revolution within the walls of a Carmelite monastery. Blanche's fears and her desire to flee the world is something I think we can all identify with. Whether it's a pandemic or a personal tragedy, I think we've all had moments when we just wanted to go and hide from the world. Blanche, however, makes the same mistake I think we all make. God doesn't want us to run away from hardship, but God's grace is offered to help live life, not avoid it. For me, Blanche's desire to enter the monastery raises the question of discerning one's vocation. What state of life do I believe God is truly calling me to? How well do I know myself so I can tell God's will from my own desires? Are my desires God's will, and are they the same thing? Hmm. So a little while later, Blanche arrives at the monastery and is questioned by the old prioress, Madame Le Croisset. She tells Blanche that the convent is not a place for refuge, but for prayer. In fact, if Blanche enters, her weaknesses will be tested. Blanche is impressed by Madame La Croisset's wisdom and seems to be fascinated by the old prioress, especially because the old prioress seems to see a special vocation for Blanche, as we, as we shall see. Blanche becomes a member of the community and meets another Carmelite, the novice Sister Constance. Constance is a very different personality than Madame La Croisset. Constance is a chatterbox who predicts that she and Blanche will die together someday. Blanche, needless to say, is disturbed by Constance's premonition and broods over it. Now we see another facet of Blanche's timidity. Not only is she afraid of life, she seems frightened by death, too. When Constance says that she expects to die young as a martyr, Blanche exclaims, What a ridiculous notion! Are you not ashamed of believing that your life could possibly redeem the life of somebody else? You're arrogant and proud like the devil himself. Once again, Blanche wrestles with a common fear, death. And once again, we remember that Jesus' death on the cross should assure us that death is not the end of our story. No doubt we want to die in a state of grace, 
But the manner or time of our death ought not terrify us. God's grace stands ready to assist us at every moment of our lives, including the final moments. If Constance seems a little naive about her own death, at least she seems to be open to God's will, while Blanche seems to be frightened by anything that is outside of her personal control. Blanche appears to be the arrogant and proud one here. Act One ends with the death of the old prioress, Madame La Croissie. She uh, Here we see Blanche's faith and Madame's faith both being put to the test. The old prioress thinks Blanche's religious name, the name she should take when she makes her profession to become a nun, should be Sister Blanche of the Agony of Christ. Madame places strong significance upon the fact that the one who bears that name will spend the rest of her earthly life contemplating Christ's agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, where before his arrest and crucifixion, his sweat became like drops of blood. In fact, it was the name Madame received when she was a young religious. The irony is that Madame de Croissy does not embrace her own agony. In fact, she begins to express a crisis of faith. She cries out, Who am I at this moment, wretched as I am, to concern myself with him, that is, with Christ? Let him concern himself with me. One of the features of this opera is how the vocal lines of the main characters imitate characters from other operas. Instead of using light motifs or theme songs like Wagner did to represent characters in his opera, just think of the Ride of the Valkyries. Poulenc made his characters sound like other characters from other operas. For example, the vocal line of the old prioress, Madame de Croissy, sounds a lot like Kundry, one of the main characters in Wagner's opera, Percival. Uh, Parsifal, that is. This is significant because, like Madame de Croissy at this moment, Kundry is a tortured, conflicted soul. So, if you had enough espresso in you to endure all 14 days of Parsifal, <sighs> of course I exaggerate, <clears throat> but only slightly. You might very well get the connection. These are the little artistic flourishes composers use to impress their friends and provide graduate students tons of material for their PhD dissertations. Um, by the way, other vocal line mimics are Blanche, who's meant to sound like Massenet's Thais, and Constance, who sounds like Zerlina in Mozart's Don Giovanni. Anyway, Madame de Croissy reminds us, as the psalm says, call no man blessed until he is dead. That is why I think we implore the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for us at the hour of our death, so that we might hold fast to the grace of final perseverance. In fact, I remember hearing about how Mother Teresa suffered a crisis of faith in her final years. She relied upon God's grace, and the world acknowledges her to be a saint. It's a good reminder to me that how I live in this world is a preparation for the world to come. Act two sees the situation become dire for the Carmelite nuns. Blanche's brother tries to persuade her to leave the convent and come home. She refuses, but when an official arrives and declares that the nuns must disband, Blanche despairs. 
One of the sisters gives Blanche a statue of baby Jesus to comfort her. But when the crowd begins to shout at the nuns, Blanche drops it and it shatters. Blanche cries out, The infant king is dead, and nothing left to us but the Lamb of God. Poulenc is making a connection between our Lord's passion and death and the impending fate of the Carmelites. I think of the words of St. Paul in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Not that Christ's suffering was insufficient to save us. Rather, we can join our sufferings to his. We can allow his sufferings to embrace our own. Sister Constance makes a remarkable observation. She sings, What goes by the name of chance may perhaps be the will of God. Just think of the death of our beloved mother, dear Blanche. Who'd ever imagine that it would be so hard for her to die, that she would ever die so badly? One would think that when, God, when he gave such a death to her, our good Lord made a great mistake, like in a cloakroom when you're given someone else's coat. Yes, I think her death belonged to another. Such a death was too small for her. It was really so small that the sleeves barely reached down to her elbows. I would say there might be someone that in this hour of their death finds their final moments surprisingly easy and that they feel quite comfortable. We die not for ourselves alone, but we die for each other, or probably even instead of each other. Who knows? Act 3. The nuns decide to take a vow of martyrdom, as they say, for the glory of Carmel and for the salvation of our land. Blanche finds this too much for her, and she flees from the convent. The state orders that the nuns be divested of their religious habits, to dress as regular civilians, and not to associate with each other or any members of the clergy. In the meantime, Blanche has returned, disguised as a servant, to her family home, which has been taken over by revolutionaries, her father having been executed. One of the nuns tries to persuade Blanche to return to her sisters, but she refuses, still feel filled with fear and dread. The nuns are rounded up and found guilty of sedition against the state. They are sentenced to death. Before discussing the finale, I want to point out a unique feature of this opera. Surprisingly, some of the most famous music in opera is not sung, especially in French operas, when it was common to have a ballet at some point in the action. For example, La Gioconda has a famous ballet sequence, especially uh, famous if you've seen Fantasia or listened to Alan Sherman, Hello, Mada, Hello, Fada, uh, The Dance of the Hours. There is a famous violin solo called The Meditation in Massenet's opera Thais. I suppose you can add the humming chorus from Madama Butterfly, since technically there are no words either. However, in the dialogue of the Carmelites, Poulenc separates each scene with a musical interlude. These interludes have the practical purpose of allowing the stagehands time to change the scenery. They also provide a sort of musical timeout for people to absorb and reflect upon the action that has taken place or is about to occur. 
Benjamin Britten used interludes between scenes in his opera, The Turn of the Screw. I saw a production of that opera performed by the Minnesota Opera Company many years ago, and I remember reading my Viking opera guide before the show, which stated, The tension is maintained and heightened by turns of the musical screw, that is, by the use of variation form. The prologue and 15 scenes are linked by 16 orchestral interludes, the theme and 15 variations, which are as vocal as any words creating atmosphere. Tell that to the two ladies in the row in front of me who insisted on a loud conversation during each of those interludes. Which reminds me of another aspect of this opera. As I said, Poulenc fancied himself both a notorious rogue and a devout Catholic. His devotion is particularly visible in the sacred music he weaves into the score. I'll discuss the sacred music he used in the final scene in a second. However, in Act Two, after the nuns make their vow of martyrdom, they sing a beautiful and traditional-sounding Ave Maria. Whatever devilry Poulenc may have been guilty of, his religious sentiments seem pretty robust, too. The final scene is powerful, both musically and visually. The nuns proceed to the guillotine, singing the Salve Regina. This hymn in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary is a favorite of the Carmelite order in general and of the Carmelites of Campania in particular. The music from the orchestra contains the sound of the guillotine blade swooshing down at irregular intervals. The first time we hear the blade crash down, the music stops as if everyone, even the performers, are startled by the dreadful blow. The march to the scaffold resumes, and as each nun meets her death, one less voice is heard until only Constance remains. Suddenly Blanche appears, bursting through the crowd to join her sisters. Blanche sings the final verse of the Vene Creator Spiritus as she goes to her death. The Vene Creator is a chant sung at priesthood ordinations and when religious nuns and brothers take their vows. So it is as though Blanche's vocation as a Carmelite is sealed with her own blood. Poulenc was criticized for not being original or avant-garde enough for modern tastes. However, I think his treatment of the final moments of this opera are far more riveting than watching Tosca throw herself off the battlements of Castel San Angelo or hearing Violetta die of tuberculosis at the top of her lungs. <laughs> Seriously. For me, good opera is not only pleasant to listen to, it allows my imagination and my emotions to take a little vacation. I believe that opera has a transcendence no other performance medium can match. I hope you have enjoyed this talk about Poulenc's dialogue of the Carmelites. I'll leave you with the opera's final moments. As I do, imagine the Carmelite nuns walking slowly, one by one, to the scaffold as they're singing the Salve Regina. And listen, listen for that swish of the guillotine. Good stuff.